So after another week of uh, all sorts of uh, national news headlines, I am going to ask you once again to just think about 15 miles. Inside a 15-mile radius around this church are far more opportunities to minister than we will ever grab. We've already talked about ministry to the needy. We've talked about ministry to children. And if for the rest of this church's existence, that's all we focused on, we'd be very busy and we would leave this earth with a good testimony. But this morning, I want to talk about a ministry that was the hallmark of the early church. A ministry that time and time again broke down the walls so that people could be evangelized played a massive part in the first 200 years of the church's history in the spread of the gospel. Unfortunately, this same ministry has become one of the most neglected. Over the past 100 years, the American church specifically has allowed a ministry like this to go from a a source of major strength to one of incredible weakness. And that ministry is the ministry to those in pain. Inside the 15 miles around this church, we will find people who are in the midst of dying. Of course, as we heard this morning, we will find people who are grieving a loss. We will find people who are suffering with chronic illness. We will find families who have been impacted by divorce. We will find people who are dealing with all sorts of mental health issues. In other words, we will find in 15 miles around this church, people in pain. Now, there's a lot of reasons for the weakness we have in this area. One could point to the fact that the sick and the dying uh, has become institutionalized. Fewer and fewer people on their daily basis are getting any hands-on experience caring for those who are hurting. It's become a professional speciality. We certainly are, though, thankful for those who are in that profession. But that means that when we are confronted with it, it leaves us uncomfortable, feeling helpless. We could also point to the health and wealth gospel, the false teaching, that if things are going well with you, God must be happy, and if things are going bad, well, he must be upset. And because of the spread of such false teaching, it's impacted the way we see people. We see somebody in pain, And if we bought that false teaching, we're going to look at them and say, you know what? It's probably because they don't have enough faith. And we're going to look at them and say, you know, it's probably because they've done something wrong. And so we hesitate to help. If one thing was made clear to me over the last year as we dealt with this pandemic, our culture simply does not know what to do or what to think about pain. Whether it's physical pain, the pain of grieving, mental pain, they simply just don't know what to do with it. We know more today about every possible type of pain. We know more today than any other generation. Yet ministering to people in pain is perhaps the one that Christians avoid the most. I could spend weeks on this topic, but we're just going to briefly touch on it this morning. To do that, we come to 2 Corinthians. We get one of the most important passages of comfort. The idea of ministry in pain. And really, it comes out of a defense of the apostles. See, there were those who thought because Paul suffered, that that must mean God 
wasn't with him. That Paul's apostleship, his authority, was not what it seemed. Now, the reason the church is given here to straighten up and listen to what he has to say is not just because he suffered, but Paul is going to point out he has also been comforted by God. The Apostle Paul is the one in the New Testament who speaks the most about God's comfort. And 30% of all that he says about God's comfort is found in these verses making it probably the single most important one when it comes to ministering to people in pain. So I have three points for you this morning. Once again, as we have been doing, they're going to come in question form. Number one, why should Christians minister to those in pain? Why should you, as a Christian, minister to those in pain? Now, verse 3 gives us this kind of compacted three-point description of God. First, you see there, he is called the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, blessed to God, or I'm thankful to God. And he's answering the question that nobody's asking, which one? Well, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. This would have been very important in the Corinthian city. We know that that city was full of all sorts of temples, all sorts of idols, had the worship of all sorts of different kinds of gods. It's the kind of statement that I would tell you that our missionaries uh, make as they work in the jungles of Thailand or in the backwoods of Kenya. They might say, you know what, I give thanks to God. And somebody would probably ask them, well, which one? Well, I give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again, made me acceptable before God. I, I give praise or thanks to the God of grace. But note the next description. He's called the Father of mercies. And again, this context means that this is a very important idea. If you don't know anything about 1 Corinthians, know this. It is a book or a letter that Paul wrote to a church to essentially rebuke them. This is a church that had to confront the sin of one of their members. This is a church that was rebuked for the amount of confusion and division that was in it. This was a church that was rebuked for the fact that they were giving in to all sorts of embarrassing ideas. Now, if you've ever been caught or rebuked or had to confess a sin, you probably know how these people feel. You're probably sure that you're going to get it at some point or another. God is going to bring something bad into your life because you've done something wrong. So it's important for the Apostle Paul to say, you know what? I give thanks to the Father of mercy. God is in the business of mercy. But the most important statement is the last one he makes. He says, this is a God I give thanks to, the God of all, if you have a Bible and you like to mark in it, underline that word multiple times, the God of all comfort. If you know your Bible in James chapter 1, the Bible says give thanks for various trials, all sorts of different difficulties. We know difficulties come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. Suffering comes because you've Broken a romance, the death of a loved one, persecution, financial loss, sicknesses, both long and short. Well, the idea here is that this is a God who has comfort for every type of trial or every type of difficulty. You see, we understand that a teenage girl who's just broken up with her boyfriend needs a different kind of comfort than a widow. 
We know that someone facing a chronic disease needs something or a different kind of comfort than somebody who has just lost a job. And we find here that God has comfort for every type of pain. The Christian never needs to doubt that God has the resource to bring comfort, to sustain with grace in the midst of pain. And that last attribute, the fact that he is the God of all comfort, that he has comfort for all types of trials and tribulations, is the context of everything he is going to say from here on out. And it answers the question, why should we minister to those in pain? Because our God is the God of all comfort. Let me explain it to you this way. Over my time here, one or uh, several of you have said to me, you know what, I don't know how people who don't know the Lord can get through a funeral. And I don't think you realize how biblical what you're saying is. You see, the Bible is very clear. Where Christ is not, where he is not found, the benefits of God are not found. The Bible is very clear. God has a gracious love for all people. A wicked person can plant a garden and grow great big carrots and and potatoes, and God's going to show them grace in that way. But they don't have the access that we do to the comfort of God because they have not put their faith in Christ. You go to the book of Psalms, and this reality is brought up multiple times. The psalmist says, you know, at least I'm not facing this like someone who doesn't know God. It's considered an advantage when there is a war. I am thankful that I go to war and all of the difficulties and all the problems that come with it with a God that I know. We become a people who don't panic when life makes big noises. In the early church, in the book of Acts, one of the reasons they were able to confront men in power, the reasons they were able to face their persecution face victimization for their faith is because they believed in the God of all comfort. But inside our context, our conversation, it leaves us with a responsibility. If we, having known Christ and being in Christ, have the special benefits of the God of all comfort, it then leaves us with a responsibility to bring Christ to those who don't have that. And it also brings us a responsibility to perhaps also minister to those in pain, those Christians in pain, who were perhaps drowning in their pain. We can bring the comforts of God to that person. Jesus carried out the costliest act of compassion by dying on the cross for our sins so that we could have access to the comforts of God. And so that means we have a responsibility to show that same compassion and bring those benefits to those in pain. But that gives me, brings me to question number two. How then should a church minister to those in pain? If we have a responsibility to bring the comforts of God, how exactly do we do that? Now that's covered in verses 4 through 10. The Bible moves from describing who God is to what he's doing, and he gives us a principle. So here's the idea he lays down in front of us. God comforts the Christian. How many of you could amen to that? God comforts the Christian in their affliction. But then note that little phrase there, so that the Christian may comfort others. 
with the same comfort they were given by God when they were afflicted. And then he moves on and kind of gives us some examples of how this worked between Paul and the Corinthians. One of the phrases Paul uses is saying that he suffered, or him and his companions suffered, and the result was their salvation. We know in the book of Acts, Paul was in Corinth for a year. We know leading up to his time in Corinth, he faced imprisonments and stoning and assaults of every type. And we can take a pretty good guess that ministry in Corinth was no picnic. Now, why can we make that guess? Because in all of Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, in all the places Paul went, in all of the things that he faced, only in Corinth does God come to Paul and say, don't be afraid. It's the only place God has to come and reassure Paul to not be afraid to preach the gospel. Here's a guy who has faced all sorts of powerful men, and God has to say to him, don't be afraid. And then we watch as Paul specially protects Paul during his time in Corinth. And all of the things that Paul suffered and all the things his companions suffered, he's saying, look, it resulted in you getting the gospel, you having faith in Christ, your comfort. But the second way God used Paul's suffering is that his suffering and the comfort God showed Paul now is something they have access to as Corinthians. For example, look verses 8 through 10. The Bible says Paul was very, made them, the Corinthian church, he made them very aware of the kind of suffering he faced. He mentions here that in verse 8 that they was, he was in such pain, they were in such pain, they didn't want to live anymore. They were certain they were going to die, but God delivered. Now go back to verses 6 and 7. Paul says that experience provided access to the comfort that now the Corinthians needed in their suffering for the gospel. So the principle, God comforts the Christian in their affliction, so that, very important phrase, the Christian may comfort others by the comfort God gave them. That means that sometimes in your life when you suffer, the question is not, why me, God? The question is, God, who needs this? So how should a church minister to those in pain as conduits of comfort? God's comfort is supposed to be circulated among his people. Now, sometimes we get to see that come full circle. Sometimes God comforts a widow in her loss, and then later in her life, she is able to comfort other widows. Sometimes people who have suffered through a miscarriage receive comfort from God, and that comfort they're able to take to others. So sometimes we get to see it come full circle. People, though, don't have to suffer the same way in order to bring the comfort of God. The bigger idea here is that God's comfort is supposed to be circulating among his people. One of the ways that happens here at First Baptist Church is several years ago, we made the decision as a church to open our building to this community for those who were having a funeral. But not only did we open the building for free, we decided we were going to let them know free of charge we would provide a meal for you as a family. Now, I know there was some some concern that was going to cost us money, and I can tell you now two years later, it has. It has cost us money, but let me tell you something. Several, uh, several weeks after we made that decision, a 91-year-old woman called me. Her husband had just died. 
She was looking because he was going to be married at the fort. She was from a couple of towns over. She was looking for a place to have the funeral near the fort. And I said to her, you know what? You are free to have this, his funeral here at the church. And let me tell you something. We will also make sure the meal is covered. And I tell you the straight truth. She just began to cry. She had no idea what she was going to do as a 90-year-old woman, how she was going to plan this funeral. And in that moment, we brought the comfort of God. We were a conduit of comfort to that woman. Now, this principle is also very important because the failure of this principle, that we have an obligation to bring the comfort of God, that we are circulated among his people, the failure to apply that has caused us to fumble a few times with people in pain. We need to understand our culture does not view pain and suffering the same way we do. Today in our society, a person who is grieving the loss of a loved one is now expected to be responsible for getting through their own grief. This is the exact opposite of how it has always gone in Christian history. It has always been understood that it is the community of the faithful who bear the burden of getting the grieving through their grief. It was the reason some wore black. It was the reason why banners were put in homes and in in windows and on doors when there was a loss of a loved one. Not just so that people knew what happened, but so that everybody understood what their responsibility was in that moment. 500 years ago, Christians used to have special services to remember those members who had died over the year. They wanted to be a comfort to those left behind, and so they would remember people like Rhonda Messersmith, who led the choir and made the Sunday morning coffee. They'd bring up people like Bill Freeman, who serves as a deacon and a trustee. And then you would organize song services to, uh, to organize, to, to bless those who might be in the midst of heavy things. And meal lists were made not just for births and deaths, but, but with the loss of a job or a medical diagnosis or the end of a relationship. People used to write letters and mail them and hand deliver them. Things like death and suffering and pain of every major and minor type was treated as what it was, a spiritual event that provided opportunity to be a conduit of comfort. We need to get back to seeing things that way. During pandemics and epidemics and plagues over the centuries, it was always Christians who stuck around when everybody left. It was always Christians who were not afraid of the smell of soiled sheets or the copper smell of blood or the ugliness of aging and disease and death. We knew we were the conduits of comfort, a comfort that only came from God, and we must be that again. But that leads me to number three. How should we as individuals minister to those in pain? How should we as individuals minister to those in pain? The final idea found in verse 11 is a request for prayer. The request is tied directly in verse 10 to the history or the need of deliverance. One of the most common ideas in the New Testament is there is a deep connection between the prayers of God's people and the success of ministry. And in this context, the idea is that the news that he and his partners were facing difficulty and suffering should result in a people praying. But let me tell you, there's a beautiful picture here. You see the phrase, by the means of many persons. It was a a common idiom. It actually meant literally, by the means of many faces. My wife's sister likes to say to us, not that she misses us, but that she misses our face. 
I don't know if you've ever said that to somebody. Paul's saying, look, these are, this is very personal. Paul says, I spent a year with you. I know you're praying for me. I can see your face doing so. It's, it's a picture of faces that are turned up into heaven, praying for him and then giving thanks for what God is doing. But I also want you to consider here, he is asking for prayer from people who are already described as suffering themselves. Think of it this way. How many of you have ever stubbed a toe in the middle of the night? What immediately happens? Nothing else in the world matters in that moment other than not waking up your kids. It's all you're thinking about. Immediately your attention turns on yourself. And that's the thing. When we go through pain, we have a tendency to pull ourselves into the center of everything God is doing. We think that all the providence is really just explained by way how it's bearing on our own life. And so it becomes very hard to think of the pain of others. But here we see in this text that our pain should follow with the question, Lord, who needs this? One of the habits that we need to build into our times is during our times of trouble, when we have difficulty, which we all do, that we need to be purposeful in praying for others and their suffering also. So the simple as this sounds, the answer to the question, how should I individually minister to someone in pain? The answer is through prayer. Now, of course, this means that I'm going to take note of people who need prayer, and I'm going to take my personal private life, uh, my personal private prayer life, and I'm going to take the time to pray for them. But this means I don't just sit and I say, you know what, God bless Grandma while she has a cough. You can pray for doctors and nurses who are around the person in pain. You can pray for medication to work with little side effects. You can pray for the ability to sleep. You can pray for opportunities for loved ones to come visit. And, of course, you can pray for wisdom about what you can do. Or we take it a little further. Not only can you pray for that person in your private personal life, you can actually, get this, go to their house. Call them on the phone. We even have this thing now called FaceTime. Now, for me to just mention that, for some of you, is incredibly scary. Nobody nobody is not wanting to help. You, you do care for that person. You love that person. But the idea of having to pray in front of that person scares you to death. You want to help, but you don't want to sound stupid. Let me give you some help. How about before you call the person on the phone, you sit down and you write out what you're going to pray? You say, that seems weird. I mean to sit there word for word as you think through Scripture, as you think through your experiences, the kind of things you wanted to pray for when you were needing prayer, the kind of things you've run across in Scripture that were a comfort to you. Sit down, write it word for word before you ever pick up the phone. It'll help keep you focused. It'll keep you from saying Father or Jesus 14,000 times as you try to figure out what to say. And if you want to be there in person, here's, here's some help with that. Keep your prayer short. Follow this outline. First, give thanks to God for his watch care. Thank you, Father, for knowing what we need. Ask something specifically for that person. Perhaps maybe you need to ask for endurance during their trial. 
and then end by thanking God for the person. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of being with this person or the blessing they've been to our church. And just end it there. I'll let you in on a little secret. It doesn't hurt. Say, what if I mess up? So what? Still doesn't hurt. Lastly, believe it or not, you can pray better for people in pain when you're willing to ask for prayer when you're in pain. John Doe can ask Fred Smith to pray for his loss of job, and John later will pray more personally for Fred when he needs prayer. That means in many cases your prayer list is going to be filled up with all sorts of physical needs and financial provision. You're going to feel at times that you have prayed for every single organ in the human body. Or you have asked God for healthy sums of money, but that's the way it's supposed to be. So as people who put their faith in Christ, we have access to the God of all comfort. There is a deep reservoir of abundant and adequate strength for those in pain. And therefore, because we have the access, we have a responsibility to take it to those who either don't have it or perhaps are drowning in their pain and struggling to access it for themselves. We are called to be a conduit of comfort. God is the producer of that comfort. Those in pain are the ones who need to consume that comfort. We are simply the go-between. That is God's design. And lastly, we are called to minister to those in pain by prayer. Over and over again, prayer is put forth to the key, as the key to success in ministry. And certainly it's going to be the success of ministering to those in pain. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would make us a people who specialize in the ministry of those who are suffering, those in pain. And I pray, Father, you would make us a church that is ready in all the awkwardness and all the difficulty and all the scariness. We would meet our obligation to bring your comforts to those that need it. I thank you, Father, for the ways you have used this church and the many you have used in this church in other people's lives. And I pray, Father, you would make it a strength in us. In Jesus' name, amen.